Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. I know. It is Easter. I know. Big pressure. Hey, um, again, Mike, and I'll try not to forget any more stuff. Um, a couple of things. Number one, welcome to our community, particularly for somebody who is new and you were bribed here um, with the promise of a very Jewish meal of ham later. Um, Old Testament joke. Uh, and, or if you're a kid, I'm sorry, here we are. This is the boring part, and uh, I'll try to make it quick and painless. I want to say hi to my son, Nate, who is watching from Ohio. Hello, Nate. He's away at college, and I miss him like crazy. Um, but besides that, what we want to do is we want to look at what exactly happened um, during the resurrection. It's not just that Jesus uh, rose from the dead, and that's proof that there's an afterlife, or that this was a metaphor for spiritual renewal, but uh, the New Testament teaches that something very specific happened and was launched in the resurrection of Jesus. And so, um, and the disciples, of course, were not expecting it. Were, they had to rethink their whole view of the world, of God, of everything as a result of this. So we're going to start where the Easter story starts, and then we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. All right, this is where the Easter story starts. We're going to put everything up on the screen, and we're going to kind of go uh, at, a, at a nice clip to get through all of this. Genesis 1, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, heavens and earth here, don't think globe or the place we go where we die. Heaven here in Hebrew is just the sky, and earth just means the ground. So in the beginning, God created the sky and the land. Now the earth, the land, was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, to the ancient imagination, waters, deep waters, uh, and I know this is kind of hard for us to, to fill in, you know, thousands of years later, but for them, deep waters represented the forces of chaos and disorder, the forces of, of meaninglessness and purposelessness, and what God is going to do over the next uh, several verses, he's going to take what was disordered and unorganized and chaotic, and he's going to order it. So he's going to fill and form in something that was formless and empty. And so to the, to the ancient imagination, the sea was a place where the, the powers and the principalities resided, where monsters resided and the forces of chaos resided. This will become important later. So the Spirit of God hovers over this, and then in the Genesis 1 story begins to bring order and purpose to what was meaningless prior to that. Make sense so far? Fantastic. Now, at the end of this creation cycle, we get to verse 26, and here it is that God said, let us make humanity in our image and in our likeness, so they may what? Rule. Yes. Now, we've covered this uh, lots of times before, but image bearing has to do with their ability to rule. Now, ruling over creation here doesn't mean strip mine and pollute it and exploit it. It means bring out the flourishing that God had embedded in creation. Bring that forth for the flourishing not only of creation itself, but for the flourishing of humanity. That's what rule meant in that instance. 
But the, the, the image bearers, these likenesses, they were made in the image of God in order to rule like God did. What, is, what does God do? God creates and brings order. What were the humans to do? They were to create and bring order also. Right? Now these are just little strings that we're going to tie together here in a little bit. When we go to Genesis chapter 2, we read about a garden. Now, the, the picture in Genesis 1 and 2 is of God, an ancient king, creating a temple for himself, which is all of creation, the entire universe. And at the center of ancient temples were gardens. And so the Garden of Eden is the center, the garden of this temple that God is making for himself. And so in Genesis 2, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And Eden here, the word means delight, which I don't know if you're going to name a garden. That's a pretty great name for it. And there he put the human he had formed. Next. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the what? What's the first one? Tree of life. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we soon meet in Genesis chapter 3. But just note the tree of life. Next. There was a river watering the garden that flowed from Eden. Now, here are just little threads, all right? A river. God created the heavens and the earth. Humans were to rule. There is a tree called the tree of life. I just want you to notice all of these things. Genesis uh, 2.15, if you would, Joe. The Lord God took the human, and man there isn't gendered man, it's just the human, and put him in the Garden of Eden to what? Work it and take care of it. Now, interestingly, those are words that are used to describe priestly service later in the temple. So the image is of a divine temple with a garden at its center where image bearers would work and serve in a priestly function to serve their God. And their their job was to expand the borders of Eden to encompass the whole earth. All right? Now, next slide, if you would. We get to the end of the story. So the beginning of the story ends with a tree and a garden and a river and human beings who are image bearers doing, doing things to, to promote flourishing. And then we get to the end of the story. This is the book of Revelation, not Revelations. It's just one revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's a pretty scary book, but this much at least um, in the last couple of chapters is clear. The writer says, then I saw a what? Right, now, now immediately, where's your brain go? We just met the first heaven and first earth, right, in Genesis 1. So we're, re- oh, so he's hearkening back now to Genesis chapter 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any what? Why is there no longer a sea? Does God hate surfing? I mean, why? Why is there not a sea there? Boom! That may have been way too loud, but I just want to commend the man in the tie. What did the C stand for? Yes, is there chaos in the new heavens and the new earth? No. So all of that, everything is ordered, everything is filled with shalom. There's nothing to threaten the stability and order of the new heavens and new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, God will be with them and be their God. 
He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne, and this is my favorite line in the entire Bible, I am making everything new. Now the word new here, there are two different words for new. For those of you who are regulars, we've covered this maybe a year ago, and I know you have it you know, tattooed somewhere or memorized. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, there's one word for new that means brand new. It means it, like it's just recently arrived, like an infant is brand new, right? And we measure it in months until some undefined time when you transition to years. How old's your, how old's your child? Oh, 18 months. At some point, you just need to put it in years for the rest of us, all right? Because we can't do that math. <laughs> so one word for new, it just means new in time, brand new. But there's another word, kenos, which means new in quality or renewed. Taking something and renewing it. And that's the word that, that uh, is used here. That God isn't making all new things. He's making all things new. So he's not starting from scratch, but he's renewing everything that is going on. We get more details of the renewal. Yes, look at that. Perfect slide. Next. Go if you would to uh, Revelation 22. Then the angel, all right, this is a chapter later. Then the angel showed me a what? Where have we seen a river? Ah, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the what? Oh, and where did we see that? Yeah, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. How great is that? No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will what? Serve him, right? This is straight out of Genesis. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will what? Rain. Now, the purpose of this really fascinating jet tour is to simply bookend the big story of the Bible by saying, isn't it interesting that when the writer of Revelation gets a vision for what it is that's coming, the vision just looks exactly like where we started. Would you agree? I was always taught that where we were going to spend forever was in heaven with wings and harps in an eternal church service. And I mean, and that, and that does sound better than the other place, uh, granted, but I don't know about you, I don't want to be here all day. Um, I mean, this is great. Don't clap at that, John. <laughs> but we have this image, and I don't know where it came from, that the afterlife consists of us as disembodied souls floating somewhere else, when the biblical record is of new creation. God renews heaven and earth, places human beings with renewed bodies on a renewed earth, doing human things forever. That's the image. You take the beginning of the story, and it looks like the end of the story. The only difference is where it was a garden, now it's a city. That's the biblical story. Now the question is, where does the resurrection fit into that? 
Because the Bible describes this upcoming renewal in a bunch of different ways. Go ahead and fire up Matthew. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the what of all things? The renewal of all things. Or next, in the book of Acts, uh, Peter. Heaven must receive Jesus until the time comes for God to what? Restore everything. Next. Or here's Paul. Jesus, Peter, and Paul. Not, not as cool as Peter, Paul, and Mary, but almost. Man, bad dad jokes today. <laughs> and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile him, uh, to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So, so we have the reconciliation of all things, the restoration of all things, the renewal of all things. Even the Old Testament prophets envisioned a day of new creation. Go, if you would, to Isaiah. See, I will create, God says, new heavens and a new earth. The formal thing, former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Go ahead and jump to Peter, if you would. But in keeping with God's promise, we are looking forward to what? A new heaven and a new earth. So the biblical story ends not with an eternal church service, hallelujah, all God's people said amen, but rather with God renewing everything. So take the best of human life. Take all those things that we love to do where we lose track of time. Take, take, imagine what it would be like to be rightly related to God with no shame or guilt or fear, rightly related to each other, no animosity or hostility, rightly related to self, rightly related to creation. I mean, that's the best glimpse we get of just one moment of what it is to be part of the new creation God is bringing about. This isn't some floaty thing. This is an embodied existence in new creation where God dwells with his people as he intended from the very beginning. Now, into this present age comes Jesus of Nazareth proclaiming this thing called the kingship of God, that God is coming back to restore his kingship over Israel and his lordship over the world. And, and Jesus comes not just as some pithy sort of Mr. Rogers teaching guy, but he comes demonstrating power. He's healing and casting out demons and doing all these things. But the true validation of the whole way and meaning of Jesus' life was what happened on Good Friday. On Good Friday, Jesus was exalted by dying and suffering and being humiliated. Jesus embodied the upside-down values of the kingdom of God perfectly by forgiving the people who were crucifying him instead of cursing them. And so he, as we talked about previously, just briefly, put to death the old order of things. But the resurrection was something different. It's not just the extra point to the touchdown. It's the launch of the new creation project. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, baby. I'm, I'm very happy. Um, I'm, I think there are four of us in here feeling the joy. Um, which, you know, is about normal. Now, any questions on this so far? We, we actually do questions. Make sense so far? awesome. 1 Corinthians 15. Now this is Paul reflecting on people who say there is no resurrection. And if there's no resurrection, Paul just very clearly says them, we're just, we're just idiots. I mean, we're lying about God. We're still in our sins. And everyone who has died in Christ, we've lost them. Never see him again. But he says, Christ has indeed been raised 
And then he uses this phrase, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, fallen asleep uh, is a, a fancy biblical way of saying dead, right? The first fruits, though, because we're all farmers, um, we understand this first fruits imagery. The first fruit is like the first part of the harvest, right? The very first instance, the very first blossom or bloom. And it's, it's the promise that it's on its way. The whole harvest isn't here, but it's just the first part. But that part symbolizes that the rest is coming. Make sense? So when Paul uses that image, what he's saying is that what happened to Jesus, God intends to happen for the rest of the universe. That that new creation project launch, that Jesus comes in his resurrected form, not just showing there's life after death, but showing indeed that the great promises of restoration and reconciliation of new heavens and new earth, that that actually is happening in the middle of the old heavens and the old earth. That was the surprise. Everybody thought, sweet, the Messiah will come, kick everybody out, start the good stuff, and we'll go on. But yet, Jesus of Nazareth comes right in the midst of Roman rule, right in the midst of injustice and suffering. And Jesus takes all of that upon himself and is vindicated in his resurrection. But as, 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 the, as the apostles began to reflect on his resurrection, they realized what happened that Easter Sunday was a whole new world opened up. So Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, Adam is the idea, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, which is the firstfruits of the harvest, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hang, hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. And I love this line. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And all God's people said, yes. Let's get that going. <laughs> Amen. Let it be true. That's what I'm saying. And so what you have is an image a shocking and surprising image to the first century Jewish mind. Right smack dab in the middle of the long slog of human history, you have the resurrection of one man. And the New Testament writers look at that and say, yeah, 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 that's, that's the launch of the new creation. In his death, he defeated and crushed the powers of old creation. He judged them and sentenced them to destruction. But in his resurrection, he launches the new creation. Now, if you're like, okay, well, that's cool. Someday this will happen. No, no, no. The new creation isn't someday. The new creation is beginning with a people. And so Paul will say things like in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, though, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. And all people over 50 said, yep, that's very true. <laughs> Yet inwardly we are being what? Now, the renewed there is that second word for new. It's the idea that we're being remade even as our bodies are fading away or next slide therefore if anyone is in christ what it's come it's here the old is gone the new is here so the idea is the resurrection of jesus easter sunday great time for bunnies great time for chocolates great time for meals and families but it's more than just, oh yeah, there's life after death. And there's more than just, hey, this is a great metaphor for renewing things. No, no, no. 
This was the launch of the New Creation Project, and we now are invited to be a part of the new creation that's coming. And you say, okay, how does that work? Well, in Christ, new creation becomes manifest in and through us. And so the church, and boy, we do not do this well, but the church is supposed to be the place where the kind of life that Jesus lived is put on display. So instead of chasing greed, we chase generosity. Instead of chasing greatness and celebrity, right, we chase humility and service. Instead of looking at the differences that separate human beings, we look at all the ways God has created us as image bearers together. And we fight for the hospitality of people who come from every tribe, tongue, and nation to sit not in disagreement, but in unity. We're the people who are supposed to love enemies and bless those who persecute us. All of that is new creation because all of that is what is true of Jesus. And all of that is what will be true of life in the new creation, but we're the presence of that life now. Does that make sense? So when you become a follower of Jesus, it's not just, well, I've got my ticket to heaven after I die. Now I get to go do what I want because I'm forgiven. That is the shallowest version of understanding that what it is that we're invited into. We're invited to be the presence of the future in the middle of all the old ways of doing human life. In the middle of revenge, in the middle of, of toxic social media, we are to be the people who embody what's coming. And that, I don't know if you know this, is a full-time job way beyond a church service. Would you agree with that? Now, the Christian church has had for generations, a picture of new creation. And it's the picture we call baptism. If communion proclaims the Lord's death until he comes, baptism pictures the new creation that is here. And the imagery Paul tells us is, is super symbolic. Baptism doesn't save us. It's the faith that saves us. But baptism is a picture of what has happened to people who find themselves in the redeemed community of Christ. The idea of going down into water is the picture of the death of the old self. And being under the water is the picture of the burial of the old self. And coming out of the water, it's almost death and resurrection. I don't know, it seems like there's some sort of congruence there. It's almost like that coming out of the water represents the new self that has been born by the work of the Holy Spirit and the people who belong to Jesus. And so we're big fans of not only celebrating the death of Jesus and what that has done in condemning the old order so that it is now passing away, but we're big fans of the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that new creation has come. And we don't always feel it, and we don't always act like it, but it is nevertheless true. And how do we know? Because Jesus has risen from the dead. The first fruits of everything that's coming. So we're people who grieve, Absolutely, the world is horrific. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And so friends, we're actually going to do some baptisms today. We've got some folks who've signed up to be baptized. And then we also have shirts and towels for people who may not have signed up to be baptized, but would like to be. Particularly if you're wearing a salmon, anything salmon today. <laughs> we have... 
other clothes for you. <laughs> yeah, we got shorts, absolutely. Listen, Jesus wore shorts and flip-flops. It's clear from the original Bible. So here's what we're going to do, all right? And, and, I, and I mean this sincerely. Um, to be baptized is the public declaration of allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom. And so we ask a couple of questions of people. Do you publicly confess Jesus as Lord, Savior, and King? Not as some religious figure, but as the rightful ruler of the entire earth. And then secondly, do you pledge yourself to service in the kingdom of God, following the way of Jesus and living out your identity as new creation? And to those who say yes, we baptize them into the water. So, like I said, there are a few uh, who have signed up to do this. But I also just want to say there, there may be some of you who would want to do this, and we do have towels and shirts, and that's legitimately okay. You're allowed. And if you ask, well, well, I was baptized as a kid. Fantastic. We honor the faith of your parents. And we recognize that there's also power in you making that decision for yourself. Both are true. So I'm going to pray. We're going to invite the, the worship team up. If you are interested at all in being baptized, you want to head over to this corner. There is a piece, a body of water, ladies and gentlemen, strategically placed and lit. It's cold. It's cold. Hey, listen, man. Jesus never said be baptized in a jacuzzi, okay? He said in the water. So what we're going to do, and we think this is a celebration, uh, go ahead and remain uh, seated if you would, just so that everyone uh, can see. Uh, but if you're interested in joining us, oh, thank you, Ethan. If you're interested in joining us, thank you. Um, you're more than welcome. You can come up and go over and talk to Sam there. Sam is the man with the hat and, uh, and some sort of hair thing that's going on over there. Sound good? And this is just simply the way the church celebrates new creation and has, and has done so for generations. And so let me pray for us, and then we will celebrate together. In the name of the Father, and in the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, we are grateful today, not only for another day of life and breath and everything else, but we're grateful to gather as a community to be reminded of what is already true. That you have indeed conquered death, you have indeed launched new creation and that we are people who no longer have to live enslaved by fear of where it's all going, guilt, shame. Father, you open up avenues of human life that are new. And so my prayer very simply, God, is you would create in us a hunger and thirst for that new kind of life. Far beyond being religious or going to church or whatever, Lord, we want to taste the reality of new creation in our midst. And so, Lord, we turn our attention just to this public declaration of what it looks like to have new life in you. And to that end, we ask your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>